0: Welcome back to the Boardman Podcast. Here with Matt, Jay, and James. Here we go, another thanks. one.
1: How you doing, Matt? And we've got Tim Nelson here from Hope for Justice. He's the CEO of Hope for Justice, which is one of the largest anti-slavery charities in the world, right?
0: Yeah, it's indeed. So Great to be here, thanks. Cheers, Tim. That's like a just need to clap him in straight away. For sure,
2: 100.
0: We've got someone that does something really good. Yeah.
1: Like, oh, this is what we were saying earlier on about somebody that can really help people.
0: Yeah like we've done a couple of things and talked about stuff online and we've got someone with us that is actually doing something really doing a, good for people. Yeah, doing like, a lot of good in the world, yeah. You know, that's his life. It's great. Yeah. Tim, maybe I should let you know how, how this
1: came about as well, the podcast, just yeah. so you know. like, um, So Tim and I know each other. Um, we've done some work together in, in that space. And, um, you know, we always thought about doing podcasts, but you know, everyone's doing a podcast, but Matt said to me, James, I want to do one. Can you, would you be involved? And I said, I'd love to, because he's a real doer. Yeah. He just gets things done. Yeah. So I think I mentioned him to you before. Yeah, you did. Yeah. He made the movie that he tells everyone about every five minutes called prize fighter. <laughs> you uh, can do uh, the plug today. And, uh, yes. where,
0: where can we watch prize, prize fighters?
1: fighters on Amazon prime <laughs> and uh, starring Russell Crowe, Ray Winston
0: and Matt Hookins. If you can get six minutes in, you get to see James's part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Lucy
1: Martin, it's starring Lucy Martin as well. Um, so, so Matt said, and because he's a doer and because, you know, we, we, through all of our working lives, we've just met really cool people. Um, and you know, we want to try and put some of that out there and some, some good information. So, and, and Jay's been working with Matt for a long time as well. So, and I, so, I actually met Jay filming in Malta and we all just got on really well. So it just makes sense to, you know, to start a podcast. So oh, that's amazing. Great to be here.
0: We, we would always sit around and just chat about stuff and it, it, it would either be really interesting stuff or it would go like funny and just be you know laughing or taking taking the taking the mick out of each other but um i don't know we just came we came up with so many different topics right we were like right where can we hit we've got this topic that topic yeah you were obviously mentioning people you know as well yeah so um great great to have you on so so no, so great. great to have you here it's yeah. Uh, yeah real pleasure
1: yeah thanks thanks a lot tim so i, I thought i'd get straight into it and um you know I always tell people this sort of story, and I don't know if it's accurate, maybe you can correct me, but, you know, there's three of the largest serious crime industries in the world. You've got guns and arms, rather, weapons, drugs, and the third one's human trafficking, right? Is that correct? Well,
3: there's estimates on it that it could now be the second largest. So um, depending on where arms are in any given year, and again, lots of these are estimates, but it's definitely in the top three. Uh, for the largest I- industries for serious and organised crime across the world.
1: Right, what, two, three hundred billion a year, something like that?
3: The the estimates are at the moment, it's somewhere in the region of $150 billion a year. Right. Um, but again, they're estimates. Yeah. And, you know, there are so many people who can come up with models on what it could or could not be. But the most... Uh, kind of well-respected organizations will go with that figure of about 100. Right, so what's ago. that? then? That's the, that's the value of it, or what's the... Yeah, what, That's what? to criminal enterprises, that's how much it's making for them all over the globe. So if you imagine across every form of what is modern-day slavery or human trafficking, sometimes they use that term, uh, whether it's the principle three that people look at are sexual exploitation, where people are held in brothels and forced into sex against their will, uh, kind of domestic servitude, um, I don't know if you saw the stuff on Mo Farah recently, where he was brought into the country as a, a, yeah. a as a boy but to, it, yeah. to actually work in homes, um, and then the the third one is labour trafficking. Those people are forced to work in agricultural settings, in businesses, and and forced against their will. There the three principal ones that you hear of. There are two others, which are um, kind of forced marriage, and then alongside that, uh, we also have where people see organ harvesting happen, where people are taken against their will for organs that they've got. But in countries where there is organ donation schemes, that really doesn't happen. That's so crazy. If
1: it? you add up all the money that comes in through that organised crime syndicate, it's like everything that's paid and spent, you know, 150, I think 180 billion or whatever it is, that's the third or second most serious crime industry in the world, only second to guns and drugs. So that, crazy. yeah, it's people don't realize how big large. it is. Yeah. Like that, that yeah. alone is just huge. Mental.
0: Yeah. Would you say, I, I would just, I'm just going to throw out that I would assume that the biggest one out of the, the the areas you just discussed was, was would be the sexual trafficking. But I don't know if, if yeah, that's...
3: It's, it's again, it's estimated that sex trafficking is the biggest. Right. Um, As we look at it across the board, it's interesting because here in the UK, actually, the, the thing that's being fined more than sex trafficking is labor trafficking. Mm. And just on last year's figures, 43% of the people who were found in the UK were children. So the perception of people is, is again, that it's people being brought in overseas. But in the UK, the number one place where people are trafficked from was the UK. So it's not until you start really getting under the skin and thinking, well, there's someone's daughter, someone's son, or well, there could be my daughter, that could be my son's son, so until people actually will do something about it. And how did you get into this, Tim?
1: Because obviously I know you from your work, like in, in human trafficking. Sorry, I know it's slavery but, or anti-human trafficking. But how did you get into it? I know we had a sort of brief chat before, but what brought you like to this point of, you know, when I met you weren't the CEO no. and now you're running like a, a large, large charity. Like so, so how did you get to that point?
3: So for me, my, what got me into it is um, originally I've got a degree in technology. Uh, I thought it was going to be a tech stockbroker, but I ended up going into banking. And one of my clients uh, was setting up an offshore investment trust in America. And he was putting a couple of hundred billion dollars of his own money into high tech stocks and invited me to sit for a couple of weeks as an advisor. I found myself in Los Angeles with a night spare. Friend of mine who worked for a children's charity said, would you like to come out in Sunset Boulevard? Who wouldn't want to do that? And I'd only heard, growing up in Northern Ireland, you'd only hear things like that on films like Pretty Woman and other (laughs) things like that. So uh, we went out for a night out and he said, do you mind if a friend comes along? And that guy who came along introduced himself as a slave hunter. And whilst we were out for dinner, he was talking to Condoleezza Rice, who was working for the Bush administration. And he was arguing about the human trafficking register and uh, girls in cages that were being shipped all over India. And he couldn't quite work out why they downgraded the, the human trafficking uh, kind of report for India, while still he'd seen girls in cages just the week before. And he came off that, that dinner and showed me images and it was like those images kind of burned in me and i couldn't his challenge to me was i don't need your money i just need you to do something about this those people that are held against their will might not be in cages but they need someone to help them so off the back of it i came back to the uk spoke to pretty much everybody i knew and a friend of mine chris he's uh, had met uh, four individuals in manchester that were looking to put on an event to tell people about this issue and he said oh you could get involved you could get you know, get behind all of this and yeah, the other grow. So there were kind of 10 of us, around 10 of us that got involved to set up Hope for Justice, the charity. And 11 months later, we hired the NEC and we got 5,884 people to our first event. So I sat on the founding board for a good period. And then when we went international, then came on board part-time and then full-time. When was this? So 2008 was when we did our first event, at which we called The Stand, because we wanted people to take a stand against this issue. Um, and then I came on board part-time 2013, full-time 2015 and at the beginning of last year to go with the CEO role.
1: And it's hard for like people to hear. Do you know what I mean? I think that the biggest issue that I've found is, you know, when I tell people about it, they're like, wow, that's really bad. And then it's on to, you know, the next thing that's in their mind, because it's it's a really, you know, you just want to see positive stuff, especially when you're looking online. But I think it's so important that people understand this message and, and the work you're doing all day every day of your life along with many others to help these people. Right. So uh, I've noticed just a lot of people turn off to it. So I think it's really good to sort of talk about like how you got there and, you know, and, and, and what you're doing in the future. I think people
0: need to see it, don't they? Like, you know, you said you saw those images and that completely changed your, like you just, you know, you changed your life essentially because you went into a different field and it, you know, completely changed you. So you have as, as, as difficult and as like painful it is to see it. And if you don't want to see it, you have to, because that's how you spark change.
2: Did, did you feel that you had to go out to these places uh, uh, and see it for yourself and, and make change from the source of where it was happening?
3: Well, it, it, at the beginning, we weren't sure. And we sent teams out to go and look into places like India and other to where, where can we place resource? Could we help in any way? Can we help other charities that are working on the ground?
2: Because I'm sure like with organised crime, there's, there's a lot of danger, uh, you know, surrounded that. So, you know, you're having to... I have some security with this as well. You
3: know, yeah, I, I think that's the thing that behind all of this, there's, there's a kind of a sense of, of fear. Now, I grew up in a different kind of family to most. Um, my mum was principal private secretary to the Northern Irish office at the time of the Troubles. Yeah. So we had like a car bomb planted outside our house when my mum and dad were building the house. And you grew up with that kind of sense of fear that pervades the community where something could happen at any point in time, but you can't live your life by that. And if you start to live your life by it, you shrink down into not, never wanting to leave your home. So kind of off the back of that basis or that lens that I see life through, you know, there is fear there and we have to make sure that we are uh, mitigating any risks that may be there for people. But at, right at the beginning, we were, we were consumed by what can we do? You know, a bit like we described, it's like, this is bad. How can we do something that's gonna make a difference? And initially we, we looked at internationally, but the more that we looked at the UK, we were saying, we have to start here. Because if we don't start here, it won't be able to, You know, people always excuse it as Southeast Asia's problem or something in India or China or somewhere like that. But until you start seeing it in the UK, it it radically changes your perception on life. And and, I mean, some stuff is really dark, some stuff actually you can start to see positive behavior of change. Because if you knew that your t-shirt had been made because people had picked cotton in Uzbekistan, then you might ask different questions when you're buying your t-shirts. Yeah, and then if you thought like, "Hey, I could change culture by me asking different questions," mm. if I could ensure that the pounds that I'm spending, the dollars I'm spending, the yen I'm spending, whatever country you're in, it can change behaviors.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the um, the fear thing as well is such a it's such a everywhere. It's it's so weird to, to to think about fear because fear is a thing that people don't want to go near, or they get scared, or they don't want to do. When actually fear. I think Mike Tyson said this, fear is your friend. Like fear puts you in those situations where you, your body, you know, different types of energy makes you change things or makes you live in a different way. You need fear to, you know, invoke change, I think, which
3: is like, it sounds like that kind of had that impact on you as well, and it's like- Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, there's a, a, a music artist, Ben Howard, and he's written a song, Depth of a Distance, and in it, he talks about, we all live in the confines of fear. At some level there's a pervasion of where fear is and we all live in that but it's whether or not you're prepared to live to the extremities of where fear is and some people are very much wanting to absolutely live to the end of themselves we wouldn't advocate people putting themselves in risky situations you know in the early days we just didn't know what we were doing to the same degree that we do now and we know what the real and relevant threats are we have had our teams threatened on numerous occasions and other anti-slavery organizations have actually had individuals killed across the world. So we really have to take this threat. As Jim said, it's serious and organized crime. If people think they can make millions off the back of doing this and you come in to disrupt that crime, you're just a threat. So then people will want to take you out.
1: Wasn't it a place in South America you were looking to open and they sort of said, look, if you open up here, we're gonna just take all of your staff out.
3: Yeah, we've, there's been a couple of places that we've looked at where there is a sense that if we did go into that area, because of cartels or because of the way that um, serious and organised crime is operated, you're just a hit away from being able to shit you down. So it's really important for us that any country that we go into, we manage and mitigate the risks to the best of our ability. But that shouldn't stop us from understanding that fear is everywhere. You know, you can walk down the street and be hit by a bus. That's a yeah. fear, yeah. and therefore you don't stop walking down the street because you could get hit by a bus. You, yeah. you, you kind of you go on the sidewalks or the pavements to try and avoid it. But in everything that we're trying to do, we've got an amazing group of people all over the world who are just sold out on wanting to make a bigger difference and see an end to this. How many people do you work with? Alfie, move the mouse. Um, We've got just over 400 staff, not quite at the 500 staff limit at this stage, but we are pushing towards that. I've laid down a vision that we wanna grow to 10 times our size in the next 10 years in terms of impact. So that means that we're gonna have to practically um, grow 26% compounded year on year. Wow. So to put in kind of context for you numerically, this last year, we saw 1,499 children that were we were able to take from a place of exploitation and bring back to their moms and dads. Wow! Which countries was that? Um, across all of our countries that we work for. 1,500? 1,499, we didn't quite hit the 1,500. Um, but it's really important for us because like we've brought, we've brought children back to their parents who their parents have had funerals for because they thought they were dead. It's that level where if you come through that, like I had this, I took a team to go and climb in Kilimanjaro at the end of 2019. And we went to Ethiopia first before Tanzania. We went to one of our centers in Addis Ababa. And we had a, a dad who went to see his 11 year old daughter who he had not seen for six months. And I'm telling you, if you saw them come together, this guy had traveled 300 miles to be reunited with his daughter. I'll tell you would walk through walls to make it happen. Because there's something just beautiful about children being set back in families. Something about, you know, a, a father's embrace to one that was lost. Wow. It's like, it is a beautiful thing, but uh, in, in real terms, you just got to think about the impact that that has on an entire community. And one of the things that, I, one of the best parts of my job is that I get sent through on a regular basis images of parents and family members being reunited with kids all over the world and it is honestly brilliant so for that for that that result to
2: happen what what do you have
3: to do to get that you know to get that done so it depends on each country that we operate in but um we, we try and take those children from exploitation that means that in some places we we have teams that work into communities that are able to find those individuals in other places we partner with, say the police and others who can find them. Alongside that, we take them to what we call lighthouses, which are short-term transition centers where we employ clinical psychologists, where we give them the right level of care and, and look after them, help to rebuild them. Uh, we do catch up education. We provide them with food and, and medical treatment and, and really start that process. We then start to try and find where their parents are. And that can be really difficult depending on the age of the child and how long they've been in exploitation. Quite often you can have family members that have passed on and the child's been left on their own and then they've, they've kind of run away or they find themselves on the streets. And in, in some countries, you know, girls are, are not on the streets more than two days before they're taken to be in sexual exploitation. You know, that type of threat is real and relevant in places like the US, it's one in six children now that run away will end up in exploitation.
2: So it must be so hard to find those credentials of, of, of those individuals. One
3: in six children in America? Yeah. What, well, if they run away? If they run away, we'll end up in exploitation. And how will that happen when somebody just physically take them? There are people who are out to, to spot individuals that are going to be at, at centres, going through, um, I don't know, railway stations, people in in places that could potentially be picked up. So is there
1: an idea, like, obviously it's really hard to know, like per capita, but in total, how many sort of traffickers
3: are there in the US? Is it Because one in six is a huge number. It is, but if you you think of it this way, uh, and again, I'm not making any judgment on this, but in the UK and the US, it's roughly the same. One in 10 men will use a prostitute at some point in time during their life, one in 10. There aren't the number of girls who at 18 want to go into prostitution. So therefore there is an industry that literally is out to try and groom girls into prostitution uh, to service that need and and that is through through runaways it's through individual girls going or boys going into care and and literally seeing them abused to a point where they would then into prostitution, not exclusively, but we do say- So
1: what percentage of prostitutes, like, would you say are there on their own will and, you know, something they want to do? Is it possible to know?
3: I don't think it is. And right. I don't think we would have an accurate number for you. And in some countries it's legalised to have prostitution. Anytime yeah. where it's legalised, the demand goes up, and yeah. therefore there are more girls who will be exploited to, to fulfil that demand. And is
1: there like a government agency that sort of goes around and checks to make sure all that sort of thing, or not really?
3: And. Um, We've got to say, like, on, on behalf of the police, the National Crime Agency, there's some amazing organisations, the GLAA and others who are Gangmaster Licensing Authority, Abuse Authority, that are, are working to try and find these individuals. But it's complex. Yeah. So even in this country, it's complex because it's hidden behind, behind closed doors and it's hidden from, from main view that, that this is going on.
1: But the Met Police have got, last time I looked, I think there was like 236 officers working at the Metropolitan Police that were working for CSE, sexual child sexual exploitation it's kind of a small number right 236 people police officers working in that area if, if one in ten you know children if that happens to them
3: yeah I, I, again in this country i'm not sure what the accurate number is in terms of what happens to those children yeah but or the, the the equation that the police put into this but what i would just say is the police do a great job it's just they don't have the resource that they need to to tackle this as an issue
1: and is i know this is like such a this is a we could do a whole podcast on the tech side yeah but you know, I think the guys in America, Ashton Kutcher, Mila Kunis, they put a load of money into this piece of software called Thorn. Yep. And Thorn actually, you know, finds, I mean, they say on their website, they find five, 6,000 a year, something like that, traffic victims, you know, children and adults. So obviously they've built a repository and a database that uses software that somehow passes that information to the police because all the police in the US, they use that, you know, that service. Um is there any reason, I don't, you know, can that be done in the UK? Is there anything that can be added on? You know, if anyone's watching that's, uh, you know, uh, tech, really good with tech or has the funding, is there anything that can be done or, or not? Because every time I've sort of asked, I know there's so much that you're doing with it and it's such a like human level, obviously, process for you to do, for you to carry out. So is that anything like a thorn kind of thing that could
3: be built here or not really? Yeah, I think, I think the first thing I would say to anybody who's interested in helping is everybody can do something. You know, everyone's got a gift, and ability. You know, you might be on here and thinking, tech, that's way beyond me. I'm not, I'm not in that world. You might be thinking, what can I do? I always think there's something that you can do from where you're at. You could be working for a company as a buyer. You could be someone who is in promotions and you're buying products and services, and you can start to ask different questions. You can start to insist that products that you're buying through your company have been checked and validated that they aren't being made through through issues of modern day slavery across the globe because this is, this is happening at, on an industrial scale globally. Mm-hmm. In terms of Thornet specifically, it, it operates to try and find uh, potential images online of, of child victims primarily. And there is other great work that's been done to try and also trace out victims that may be identifiable through hotel bedrooms and, and a lot of other technology that is coming together. What, they're going to the yeah, right. they go into the CCTV? Yeah, well, they go into the images that are, are displayed online. Because if you've got an image of a child or an image of an individual that's been taken online, yeah. it'll be taken somewhere. Right. Maybe it's in a hotel. Maybe that oh. hotel could be- So use the
1: background of the image to start, so- okay. So there's okay. different
3: mechanisms that they can use technology to try and identify and right. understand what's going on. But I think we're only on the very early days of why technology can be used to really yeah. use and capture people. But we're, we're now starting to see online sexual exploitation grow at a massive level there is somewhere in the region of 2,000 transactions a minute going through for online sexual exploitation. 2,000 so transactions a minute? A minute globally going on.
1: So, so that decision. would be on the dark web or the normal web? Normal web. So, so 2,000 a minute. So that would be someone receives a link. And is this, sorry, is this child sexual exploitation or,
3: or slavery? So uh, on, on the technical definition of child exploitation, when they are used for sexual exploitation online, it is trafficking. It doesn't, they don't have to be moved. um, Right, right, right. Terminology for trafficking.
1: So so there's that many, um, wow, of just children. So So so
2: do you think there needs to be more to be done for those platforms
3: online that can monitor this? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, all of the major platforms can do more than they currently are. They're all doing something, but they can all do more. But I think there's a level that they can go to where they're identifying IP addresses, where their geolocations, and they can link up so that we can start to make smart decisions based on, well, who has bank accounts that are linked to that IP and what transactions are going through? You know, there's, there's been some amazing um, opportunities to find individuals because transactions are going through at odd times against the businesses that they're operating. You know, if you're running a car wash and most of your cars are going through at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., someone's going to ask the question of, well, you're not running an all-night car wash. Right. How is that possible? Yeah.
1: I always, With this stuff, Tim, Like, because I know a few th- bits that you, we've discussed, is it, you know, do we want, people to know that right because i'm like you know if someone's listening right and they're a trafficker they're gonna think okay maybe i'll pass my you know my my payments through uh, you know in normal business hours so like how do you go through that line of saying okay it's right to explain how this works and you know the pictures in the hotel room and you know i remember when we spoke to sherry she was saying that they use this ai technology and they can look at um not just webcams but they can actually look at pictures of adverts that are put online of and they can, using um, AI silhouette reference, they can tell if that's a child in the, in the, right? So it's, you know, is it okay to sort of like for us to, you know, tell everyone how this works? Or do you think we, it, we, it should be like more of a clandestine thing?
3: I think you've got to look at it like this. Most people have this impression that traffickers are stupid. Now, what they're doing, I don't agree with in any way, shape or form, but they're not stupid. No. They're running a serious business. Yeah. So if we think for a moment, they don't know, that people know, that processing transactions at night is wrong and that's gonna potentially be caught up. It's just to the point of it is where the threat is. So there's things that I would like to see change. You know, I can, I look across Europe and there are two countries in Europe where this last year, there wasn't one trafficker prosecuted that didn't get a custody uh, that got a custodial sentence. So not one, there's two wow. countries where traffickers were fined and they were let off. They didn't have to go to prison, two countries. This is why so the threat level is very low
0: it sounds like um it sounds like two major things need to happen you mentioned the resources it sounds like there needs to be a big vamp in in more people doing more Mm -hmm. whether it whether you're actually employed by you know someone like yourself or you're actually just doing more on your daily day-to-day basis and you know you know it sounds crazy to compare it but you know when they started You know, racking up the speeding fines in the UK, you just saw. You know, loads of people stop feeding, uh, stop, stop speeding. So that law needs to change. Like, you can't be getting fines for trafficking. That's just crazy. No, um, you need to be. It's
2: finding ways to exploit them, really to the to the source. Yeah.
0: Well, it's it's like you just need to be much more serious. Like, I'm. I'm. I was going to ask, like, you know, how are how are these people working for them? In a way, like, you know, if someone's really poor. And they get into drugs and they start selling drugs on the street or whatever you can there's a like there's a, almost a little bit of a level of go okay you're super poor you get we get that that's what you're doing like with this how i don't i can't even comprehend if someone can even get involved in it you so know it's like, like the if,
3: worst yeah if i talk you through kind of how sometimes these things happen we had yeah. a case in 2015 and um we initially find two individual victims we went on to find i think it was 53 victims and then with the police um, just over 400 victims were identified through this particular case, the largest case in European history for this. What ended up happening was you had a business in the UK that wanted to pay a fair wage, minimum wage, for the jobs in the agricultural setting, serving a lot of the supermarkets and, and businesses that you would buy from on an ordinarily basis and not think anything of it. Well, they, did, they couldn't get the people at minimum wage who wanted to do those jobs in the agricultural setting. So off the back of it, they went to a recruitment company. Now, what happened for these traffickers, they managed to embed someone in the recruitment company who worked for them. And then they had a team back in Poland who they could go and find people. Some of these people were vulnerable. Some of these people were homeless. Some of these people were uh, suffering from mental health issues back in Poland. Desperate needs for, for jobs. And then they bring them over to the UK. Which sounds attractive. Sounds attractive place them all into the same house. So you have 30 odd people in a three bedroom house. So, or you've got people where they've got no access to running water, no access to electricity. They don't have access to the bank accounts that have been set up for them. So the business is paying a fair wage, but the trafficker is literally taking all of that money to themselves. And we had individuals that were being paid as little as 20 pounds a week. And for anybody who wants to check it out, you go, Panorama did a, a program on it called British Slave Gangs. And it showed the real destitution that these individual victims have, have come through. But for a lot of the companies, they didn't have the, the right checks and balances in place to stop it from happening. So for me, it's about understanding what the issue is and understanding what you need to do about it. It's funny you say that. Like my,
2: my dad's a handyman and, and uh, he uh, goes around to different houses, fixing people's houses. And he would notice that there was like lots of women mm-hmm. in, in, in these houses and they were like crammed in. He was like what's going on here? Like, why is there so many people? And it's just, that's just one of the issues that he was just like, right, whoa, what are these guys doing? And then he would find that they, they all had like, uh, one man that would just come over, make sure that they were okay. And it was just, that's where it's so organized, you know, and, and, and it's going so under the radar.
3: Yeah, I mean, if, if girls are in, in a brothel in this country, what we understand is that girls will be moved every three weeks. They have no idea where they are. So after a while, if you're broken, um, through man after man coming in and sleeping with you, you will you lose a sense of understanding of what life actually is. You know, we had one girl who uh, we managed to rescue in the UK a number of years back. And, and she wrote down in her diary, not her hopes and dreams. She wrote down the number of men that she was forced to service in a given day. And on her worst day, she got to 110 men. Like that, that level of abuse uh, and this particular, Um, individual tried to um, jump out of a first floor window and the trafficker, even though she'd bust her leg, dragged her up by the hair, put her back on the bed for the next man to walk in. That's how little there is any thought of these individual uh, girls or, or boys are lives they're not, themselves
2: they're not classes or treated as human beings you yeah. know they're,
1: they're, uh, they're, I heard yeah. that I remember when I came to your office last time um, one of the guys there told me this to always they'll tell me a story you know and uh as part of that sort of fear thing and knowing what goes on and, and that was the story you know that that she jumped out the window like really damaged her leg and then he just took her pulled her back upstairs I mean like you know obviously there's something that's going through those the, those people whoever are doing that and um like what? What else can be done? You were saying like you know what? What if people really want to help? Um, I know they can like, make donations right to the charity for hope for justice, which is really helpful. Because okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's what 14 lighthouses. Yeah, so we're we're, we're
3: I think we're on 13 uh, lighthouses 13. that we have,
1: and each one's 300 grand a year. Um, just depending on which country it is, but we'll go with an average of about of 300 grand a year. And because when obviously these mainly women go there, they've had loans put in their names, they've had mortgages put in their names. So there's like a three or four month kind of rehabilitation process to try and get everything back. So obviously, you need funding for that. You need funding for all these offices you've got all over the world. So, one thing would be to donate, right? And what would be the other thing, and we'll put a link to that here, right? For, so, and any money that is this podcast earns, obviously, will go to Hope for Justice, of course. And any, what would, what, at an individual level, if someone doesn't have any money, what could they do
3: like, with their skill set to help, do you think? Yeah, so we said there's three things people can give. Time, treasure, talent. Right. So we talked about money, the treasure. People can give either monthly, they can give a one-off, or they can give through something they're doing. So I'm going to take a team to Patagonia later this year. It's a fundraising event. People do cake sales and all that kind of great stuff around the communities to raise money. And, and every little bit counts. It costs us roughly about 500 pounds a year to see a child taken from exploitation and to see them uh, kind of rescued, to see them brought into the lighthouse for the stabilization and care, and then to monitor them up to two years afterwards. We've got somewhere in the region of a 92% success rate with girls and an 88% success rate with boys two years on, but they're still stable in those families, which is absolutely amazing. That's amazing. What we're doing. Oh. But that, that money piece is easy and relatively simple for people to do. And if anyone's you know, won the lottery recently and they're, they're feeling the urge to give, I wouldn't want them to fight that urge. But, but really when you get into the other two where people can use their time and talent, that's where actually I think it becomes alive to people. And I always think if there's something that connects to your heart, that connects to the hand that you're doing something, it can make a big difference. So like you described how your dad is a handyman, like even just getting the understanding to spot the signs. That is the very basic of, once you know how to spot the signs, then you can know who to ring, you can know what to do so that he can use that piece of information that only he has, only he's seeing, to be able to hopefully see people set free. In terms of people's talent, it depends on what people have um, that is going on in their world. So you can have people who, who might be an investment banker. And if you get someone who's an investment banker, um, you know, that they're, they're not gonna give their time to, to wanting to come and, and pack bags generally, or they're not gonna want to sit on a stand, or they're not gonna want to tell people about it. They might actually want to go to a big business and say to them, come on, we need to do more about this, or they might want to set up a vehicle for people for investments, so that those investments do not have any form of modern slavery within them. But I I think what we've got to try and get to is a point where people go, I'm interested, send us your your details and we'll see what we can do to put people to work. Other other than that, people can come up with suggestions that they could do in the communities they're in, because I don't want to fit it into a box because it's so easy for people to go, hey, if you say that, you know, the tech thing, I'm not in tech, so that, that doesn't. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Yeah, it's much harder for them for most people to go. Well, everybody can do something. Yeah,
1: it's crazy. Like, no, I don't think anyone. Did you know that happens? In I don't think most people know that happens in the UK. I mean, I know it's as bad in any country, right? Because I remember when I read about this first. Again, don't know if these numbers are correct. So check them. But 80% apparently of people in West Bengal in Calcutta are involved in human trafficking you know a lot from families and like it's a huge percentage so you you hear about it and but when it is close to home there is something it strikes a nerve with people because people I don't think people expect that is happening in the UK that children are being like sexually exploited you know it's it's, it's, it's really crazy well, the fact that- it's
0: one of the biggest you know like say crime organized crimes i mean it, i think the thing that hits home especially just you know just listen to you speak I'm, my mind's blown it's that, that heart to hand thing is like it takes away anything about knowing tech or having money or hearing that heart to hand is everyone's got that yeah
2: everyone, everyone wants to help that. yeah
0: everyone sure. everyone can do that even if it's little
2: yeah. you know i and, suppose you're, you're running so many campaigns on the go and it's almost like you don't really want to expose the people that have, have gone through this experience but do you necessarily use them as a testimonial to to attract the attention that it needs to 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 gather
3: people to help yeah, so we would use people's stories. We anonymize them so we don't give them their name out so we, victims can't be identified. I think it's important for us that we don't put individual victims on stages. On the spotlight, Because it can create what's called second-degree trauma, where they can be re-traumatised right. by telling their story. And also there's a, a part where someone, if they tell their story and people react to it, the story itself can somehow get warped from being what the truth of the story is. And, and again, everything that we do is based on trust. So we have to be able to tell effective stories, but tell them well and tell them truthfully. So what we tried to do um, in the early days when we set up Hope for Justice, we, ha- we had this, uh, Twitter had come out 18 months before, and we used to tweet out that it was time to drink champagne and dance on the tables. And it was amazing because if there, you're ever gonna get a celebration moment, it's somebody being rescued. And we would have people send in bottles of champagne and we would you know, toast a glass to the, the, the rescue that had just happened because there's a lot of work goes into seeing someone set free. It's not just, it's not just a, hey, we sweep in and sweep out. It's, yeah. You've got to try and build bridges of trust with individuals. You've got to see if there's a way that you can engage with them for the long term. Otherwise, what you're just going to do is interrupt a trafficker's day and see that person bounce back. But we, we launched into that, and when we went internationally, Alcohol is a different view in different countries and different locations. So we didn't want to be prohibitive to them. So we were looking at uh, for a way of being able to celebrate a moment. And one of the guys in our comms team had spotted um, a case file in in Cambodia, one of our offices there in Phnom Penh. And um, there was a a girl called Sophia. And during the day, um, she was held in thick chains and a big heavy padlock. And she was forced to work on a building site. And the trafficker worked out that they were able to make more money by serving her as a prostitute in the evening. And this girl from 13 years old that she's held in thick, heavy chains. So it... building site in the day, prostituting. The... But what made it really awful was that her mum was involved in the whole process. I mean, you can't even get your head around that. But one of our, uh, our team saw that, that actual image. And from that image, we, we created what we call the freedom wall. And we take an open padlock and every single rescue we get, we put their, their name We put the year that they were rescued. That open padlock goes on the wall. And now we started partnering with businesses and you've got businesses who are putting these into their foyers. And it's a massive talking point because people go, what is this freedom wall? Mm
2: -hmm.
3: What what, what does that mean? Why is that Mm person? Because it is so unusual for this red padlock to be sitting on the back of the wall. And I think what we've learned is that the power of a story, I've discovered that that if something really impacts me, I can communicate it so much better to other people. If it actually touches my heart more than any other. And I get stories every single day that come through. And just before Christmas, I had um, a story that came through and it was uh, of an eight year old girl. And I've got, I've got girls myself and, and similar sort of ages. And, um, and this particular one, we, we have the, the clinical psychologists that ask them what they're hopeful for in the future. And it's, it's, you know, it's a dark subject. So you want to turn the darkness towards where's the light. And this little eight year old girl said that she was thankful that she got to sleep in a dry bed. Wow. And there was just something about it that that just arrested my spirit to the point where I went, sleep in a dry bed. And it caused me to look into her story more. And her mum had got hooked on drugs to the point where they got kicked out of the home that they were in. They were on the streets and her mom to, to to be able to feed the other children was selling the daughter from man to man. And the fact that at eight, she was thankful that she got to sleep in a dry bed. I, I, I went back to my kids and I said, you don't know you're living. The fact that there are kids like that who night after night are having to do the most inhumane things. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it literally touched me to the point where I went, I never want to take it for granted when I took my kids in at bed at night, that there aren't more kids out there that actually need us to, get off our blessed assurance and go out and do more to try and see more of these kids set
0: free. And it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, just just take a moment to like, take that in. It's crazy. I think, you know, you touched on as well, when you rescue them, that's not, you know, that's not really the end. That's kind of the beginning because you've got to rescue them and then, you know, try and help fix them and solve them. And there must be a process, you know, because you might even get you know, children or people or the people that go, no, I don't, I don't want to be rescued or, and you don't realize what, you know, what damage it's done. It it must take a long time. Like you said, it can take a couple of years just to fix them. I think there's that. And then the other side of that is you kind of, in a weird way, if, if someone you rescued did get fixed and they were really smart, it's almost like a, a drug addict that comes after and then starts talking about, you know, why not to do drugs. You kind of, it, that that story itself from someone that's lived it is also a, a powerful thing do you ever have people like that that can come through and, and they they go well actually i want to help other people now so i want to i want to go on stage and and tell the world because you know those little things are just when you're dealing directly with someone that's like had
3: it it's just like i said it's a little bit more impactful yeah we we talk about the survivor voice and the survivor has to speak into what we're doing so that we can do it more effectively it that survivor voice we want to have it appropriately because depending on what people have been through, we don't want to re-traffic them. So we have to put people into a place where they, they feel comfortable. Quite often, it can be years afterwards that people want to go back and help. And I can remember an amazing story for a girl called Mary who, um, in Cambodia, came back and spoke to all of the girls in one of our lighthouses. And just to hear her, her testimony about, actually, this is what my life was like years on, this is where my life is now. And, and, and just how, how that hope for the girls, that if they are in the midst of, of what is a really difficult time of restoration, that once you get to the other side of it, there will be healing. Mm. And there will be, there will be a completely different future for you. And that's why you know, it, it takes years to put people back together if they've been broken. But the joy and the hope of, almost like punching holes in the darkness, and being able to bring light to people in a way that is just so transformative. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And and we've got such amazing people on our team who are so gifted at being able to help at each stage, therapists who know what to say and when to say it and how to help them through that difficult, painful journey. And then alongside that, we wanna see justice for them. So that that inevitably involves potential court Proceedings and trying to help people through the mental health journey of taking the trafficker to court, depending on how long they've trafficked, depending on how many other um, individuals might have been involved, can take years. That case that I talked to you about, the 400 victims, Operation Fort, 2015, the last traffickers were prosecuted in September, 2021. So it takes years to see this true, true justice, but actually the difference of justice in, a, in the mind of someone who's a victim can be part of the healing process. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why, again, we talk about it as a, a four part strategy that you've got to have prevention, you've got to have rescue, re- restoration, but you've also got to see a reformation of society. But what, like, I,
0: you know, I can understand if a, you know, court fine for speeding you know, or something takes a lot of time, but something like that, what, what, why, is it, why is it taking, then okay. That needs to be the shape of it. But you, like-
3: start to get, you start to ask questions, don't you? It gets shut angry when I'm
1: thinking about it. Obviously, you've got that level of things that are happening. Then you've got this whole Epstein thing that has really brought light and opened a lot of people's eyes, right? And a lot of people are mixed about it because he really prayed, or they, as it now seems, really prayed on like kind of vulnerable girls. Um, they weren't classed as children, right? And this is something crazy. We found out the other day, we were driving through Italy. The age of consent in Italy is 14, I mean, that, that's, that to me is insane, like kind of how, but to, to, to go into that, what's your thoughts on, on on Epstein and, you know, what that case sort of tells us? Because it just seems like, you know, everybody online is saying, well, why, you know, if, if, if uh, Clinton was on his private jet 26 times and six of those occasions he didn't have his security team with him, you know, you've got all these other kind of funny questions you keep on hearing around it. You know, does this just go way, way deeper than everybody knows, or is that kind of more conspiratorial?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, Epstein, in in one sense, is really good to to kind of awaken people to what's going on in the real world. At one level, though, it can sometimes take our eyes off the wider implication of how society is abusing children, women, girls, boys. I, I think I think if I go for the wider and then come back to the the Epstein thing, I think by by directing it to the social elites or the individuals who were connected to Epstein. Yep. there can be almost a sense of, well, that's a bad crowd, but I'm in the good crowd. You know, there's no way I would be involved in this. There's no way I would engage in this. And, and that's where whenever I say things like labor trafficking and the fact that your mobile phones, most people here will have an Apple iPhone or Samsung. And, and the reality is there's cobalt in each one of those phones. If you've got an electric vehicle, there's cobalt in the batteries. Seventy percent of it's mined by people who are being exploited in the Democratic Republic of Congo.
0: I mean, they've made jokes on that, you know, on, on, on the, the Academy Awards about and Golden Globes about, you know, how Apple is, you know, funded by you know people that are underpaid in China or in factories and stuff like yeah,
1: that. And they've got nets in uh, Apple, um, you know, where all the workers they don't jump off because a lot of them jumped off and killed themselves. I did hear about that, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah,
3: but it's 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 that type of thing. So I I, I don't want to make it just look at this because I'm like, actually, if we kept enough asking enough questions. If a movement of people started saying, we're not gonna have our products made by slaves. Mm. And the problem for us is there's so many products that we have been made aware of that are being made through forced labor. Um, If you go for a pearlescent effect on your car vehicle or women or maybe some men here who are into the shimmer effect of makeup, it comes from a product called Mica, that's being made. Uh, no, you did look at him, so he used to wear makeup.
0: <laughs> look at him like shiny. Is. Just because
3: I'm sweating buckets. He's old, the
0: oldest one here. No stress, just shining with makeup. Are you gonna but, stop using it, But then? the
3: youngest that looks the oldest and used to wear makeup. <laughs> <laughs> but to that point, kids as young as five in places like Madagascar or India yeah. are mining mica. And it, no one's aware of it. And if they were, maybe they would ask different questions. And just to pull it back to kind of the Epstein side of Mm. things. The case itself has highlighted, there is a major problem with children being groomed into sexual exploitation. It's highlighted how easy it is for individuals to do that. It's very obvious from my perspective that more people were involved or more people were complicit or compliant Mm. within what was going on. And I think it's up to the authorities as to what level of body of evidence there actually is mm. to be able to convict people or bring people to justice. Mm. And I know there will be teams of people looking at that. And quite often because it's a hidden crime and because you're dealing with vulnerable individuals in the first place, it can be really difficult to get the body of evidence that you need to to convict individuals. And I know there is the, the public conviction in the, the, the court of public opinion but in real terms, to see justice brought, you have to be able to bring both criminal cases and civil cases. And sometimes there's not the body of evidence to see a criminal case brought for people to serve custodial sentences. So in in, in that view, you take a civil case to try and exert as much money as you can for what the trafficker has done to those individuals.
1: But also in the, the islands, they were saying that, you know, there were video cameras there in, you know, in his island, and a lot of it was recorded and apparently like hardly any of it was not not documented, was not not documented. It was all documented at the time. So that, a lot of people are saying, will all this come to light? You know, all these people that have been involved. Um, so it was a funny meme on that recently
0: <clears throat> where the, what's the Prince, what's the guy that was like, Prince, prince
2: Andrew, <laughs> I was literally about to,
0: <laughs> to, to post a picture of him, like saying like, you know, are you sweating now in like the, in the, in the heat wave in London? Yeah. <laughs> it's like just a picture of him, like, you know, like looking very suspicious, like asking about the sweat. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting what you say, cause you can, you can get honed down into one area, but you know, you mentioned briefly clothing and, and tops and, you know, Cloving is the biggest, I think it's the, it, it's it way past it's like food and everything in terms of the biggest agricultural problem in the world, like in terms of the greenhouse gases and everything. Also, and, plastic in the ocean. Yeah. Polyethylene. And you, you go to like, you know, great, if I'm going to go to Zara or somewhere to buy clothes, but you go to like Zara, Primac, and you just think, how, there's no way these clothes can be that cheap. In Primark, so, someone, some, you know, the, the the If you go right back, someone somewhere in China or, or uh, you know a country is making these clothes for nothing because it's being sold here for three pound or five pound, and it's like it's just little things like that that that's a form of like you know ex- exploitation and, and kind of slavery in a way because there's loads that people don't know about the process before that and it's like i don't know it's like trying to make people aware of all those things like that you're just living in clothes
3: or or going out there's so many things that you can think about yeah i think in clothing there's somewhere like 75 million people who are employed in the the garment industry worldwide and those people will be paid a range of what is fair or not fair salaries across the globe i I think i think what you're describing and what you're alluding to is actually a movement and and what I see culture and society changes when people go, I'm not gonna tolerate this. Mm -hmm. I had the privilege um, just the summer before last of traveling to Northern Ireland, we took on another organization to merge into us. And whilst I was there, I visited a place called Clifton House, never heard of it before in my life. But this this amazing uh, building was built in the 1700s and it was built to house children who had been in poverty, initially 40 kids, but it was like 400 kids within six months and that's amazing. And as I walked past, there was a a statue for a lady called Marianne McCracken. Again, it's a lady you've never heard about from the 1700s. Sounds very Irish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but what I found out about this, this lady, she was the niece of one of the founders of this place, Clifton House. But because she heard about the transatlantic slave trade, before she had the right to own property, before she had the right to vote, she led a movement of women in Belfast that abstained from having sugar in their diet. 1700s, okay, is before anything, you know, by right before she had the right to do anything really. And then on top of that, it talked about the fact that her and a number of men led a movement that in Belfast was the first place in the UK to uh, ban slave ships coming into Belfast port. And why that was really important is a lot of the wealth that was made in Belfast that the transatlantic slave trade was made off the backs of slave labor. In fact, the wealthiest person during the time of this transatlantic slave trade in New York came from Belfast. So it was so key and pivotal, but they led a movement to ban uh, slave ships coming in. And then even further than that describes when she was in the last few years of her life, when she's a pensioner, so to speak, she was rugby tackling people after the abolition act passed in, in America that for Irish people emigrating to, to North America that they would go and see their senator to ensure that the Abolition Act had been passed in their state. And I, I look at it and go, okay, we've got this is before social media, before anything mm. could be filmed and sent around the world. This is a lady who, even when she was well on in age, said, I can do something. Yeah. I have the power. I'm buying clothes. You know, I, I get to determine what I'm doing with my life. I yeah. can be passionate about something. And I, I, I kind of what I see in society is there's a there has to be a movement to stir people from a place of apathy into action and so that people go, actually, th- that's not on. And maybe I should ask a question the next time I go into a store to buy something. And maybe I shouldn't just assume that it's quality and the price that are the only things I'm interested in.
1: Yeah, You know what's crazy, Tim? We actually chatted down our last episode like about, you know, um, like this huge sexual economy now on Instagram, right? Now, every, the, everybody who kind of, Takes part in it, is kind of willing, you know. But there's such somebody said, I'm not sure who they, who they, the person's name, but they said, you know, Instagram now is a sexual economy, right? So um, somebody will put up pictures themselves, you know, provocative pictures, they'll get loads of DMs to say, oh, you know, come to this country, come to this country, and they'll fly all over the world, you know, based on a promise for something. Like, so we were saying that just the moral sort of torptitude of, you know, humanity at the moment seems to be going downhill rather than uphill. Is that gonna have a knock on effect with all of this or is it just two separate, complete, separate worlds?
3: Uh, No, no, it's directly connected. I think you've got to look at the main platforms. We did an experiment in April this year and we had one of our investigators with approval from uh, US regulators uh, that we set up a test on Instagram. And we set up a a female profile of a 15 year old girl. Typical, we used a picture that was a stock image, you know, where you couldn't identify which was the one of the girls. And we've documented this through a series of films that we've done. But within 30 minutes, this dummy 15-year-old girl was approached online through the DM, offering $5,000 and multiple times for images that she might be able to give of herself. Within 30 minutes of a profile being created. You've just got to imagine of. Imagine yeah. if that had been going for a year. Imagine yeah. if they could develop that connection over a longer term. Yeah. And, and, if, I, it, and if it was, and, if, and obviously if it's real as well, you know, it's like. Yeah. So, so what you're looking at is there is an industry that is built up around abusing individuals yeah. or getting hold of things. So,
1: Sorry, Tim, because one thing has been, you know, bothering me a lot. I'm very close with uh, someone from Ukraine um, and I've uh, been close for like four or five years. And I keep on seeing this thing where like there's jokes online, which, you know, are saying that. And I, I didn't know if it was real, but I went onto the government website and basically you've got this thing where um, if you're a refugee, um, which and you when you picture refugee, you picture a very different thing because... A lot of Ukraine at the moment, obviously it's not safe, but it's not as dangerous as it was. So you can leave Ukraine, you can fly into any one of the 27 EU countries uh, and you can stay with a family or a business, it said. I remember. So I said, how are the government like checking that those people that are home housing? It are these, legit, yeah. Are legit, yeah. Because like, they're coming from like a very vulnerable position, right? And, you know, they have no idea. They're like, oh, is this, they're, they're, do you know what I mean? How. Do you know how that's being policed?
3: Um, So there is a scheme for this particular country and in each one of the countries. I was out uh, a few weeks ago speaking at the OSCE, which is the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe and and constitutes 57 different governments. And I was speaking in Vienna with a number of key government internationally. We're we're starting to see girls popping up that have come into this country and come into other countries across Europe that are now popping up as being victims of human trafficking, modern-day slavery. Um, There is a scheme to try and police and and, uh, hope for justice. We're trying to help where we can to provide the right level of services and and help and support. But we've got 100,000 individuals now that have moved to this country. We're talking a scale that this country has never seen to be able to vet and ensure that those individuals are safe. What you're now starting to see and understand is if you want to exploit people, you look for vulnerable people. You know, migrants are perfect opportunity for traffickers to exploit. So whether it's Ukraine or one of the other countries across the world where there is war, one of our biggest offices is in Ethiopia, And there's over 2 million individuals that have been displaced because of what's happening in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. Those individuals have been trafficked either within Ethiopia or or worldwide. And I just
2: read a stat the other day, uh, 20,000 have have come through to the the English Channel, you know, and it's just like, it's it's incredible numbers.
1: But to me, that sounds like, it seems crazy that the government would put a scheme together when they know, right, they know the scale of what's at slavery happens, right, in the UK. And they'd put a scheme to say, anyone can house this person. Like, to me, that just seems like it's asking for trouble. You know, and, and I know the budget's, like, huge, but surely there's a better way to do it where there's a controlled environment that they can be for three years, you know, rather than just any random
3: house, someone's yeah, house. You're talking serious numbers, though. Somewhere in the region of 10 million people have been displaced because of Ukraine. Right. No government has, the, has right. a scheme to be able to house them. Right. And what, what the governments are really keen to not have it's camps, because anywhere where camps have been set up by the UN and others, 10 years later, those camps are still operational. Right. So to place people with families makes it easier because there's a sense that they can be housed in a, better circumstances in the large part. And there will be, for the large part, there'll be individuals, really good people in this country right. that have stepped up to say, we right. want to take care of people from Ukraine. Right. Is there a
2: proper screening process to, to validate that?
3: It did say that on the website. There,
2: yeah. there, is,
3: there is a scheme. Yeah. But if you're a trafficker, you will look for a loophole. Yeah, you look right. for a mechanism yeah. to yeah. it. And I don't doubt that there are people who've been trafficked through this process because we're finding something. In
1: there. Do you not think like, I mean, as a tech person, right, my background being tech, is why can they not just build like an AI platform, you know, like use DeepMind, you know, that it can fold proteins, right, Alpha, or like AlphaFold or AlphaGo, you know, beat Lisa LisaDal, you know, best yeah. Go player in the world at, at Go. Like, can they not build something that says, right, we're going to look into all these phones yeah, our phones have been looked into already. We're going to look in and we, we can easily see using natural language processing. If these are bad dudes, if these are bad girls and find out what's going I know it's like a big thing, but technically that seems like the only way you could do it. Technically. You,
3: you make it sound so simple. Yeah. And I love it because you've got such a technical know-how and understanding mm. of it, that it, it brings it all to the point. Well, surely we should do this. Yeah. But at, you know, at its basic level, you've got 100,000 individuals that are arriving into this country, yeah. going into all different types of local authorities that already have compound pressures from migration or from complex needs that are in those individual right. communities. I think the, the scale of what governments either nationally or locally are dealing with is overwhelming. Right. And, and you, know, you touched upon the smuggling that's happening uh, across the channel. You know, at, at that level, it's really difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm because at one level I understand people don't want to have um, unfettered migration to this country, but it's very clear whenever the government did away with um, the low-skill migrant visa, numbers started growing massively crossing the channel because they were desperate to get to this country. So for me, because there's issues on, on not having enough people working in the workforces at the moment, I was listening on the radio recently about farmers having to literally plow products that had grown back into the ground because they didn't have the people to pick them because we're stopping migrants from coming into this country. I think there's, there's a, a sense that we need to understand and have a real educated discussion around migration. And I think what benefits it gives to us. We've got over 100,000 vacancies on the NHS at this moment in time. If I got sick, I would be very glad for anyone who was skilled enough to look after me. It wouldn't matter about the color of their skin. It would be the content of their character and their ability to help me that I would only care about. And I think at its very core, this country was built on fairness and equality. And I think there has to be a sense of understanding that for community, we need to see assimilation happen. Not just at immigration, but assimilation across the board. Has um, has
2: hope for justice ever been documented on on, on television, or has there any has there any has there been like a documentary that's you know exposed these uh, these
3: charities to to say like you know there they're, is, but they're it's doing not, some, it's not doing getting there real. is
1: there's stuff on the website, but yeah. it's not getting the reach, is it?
3: No, and I, again, it's part of this sense of do you switch off? Do you, is there such an overwhelming sense of everything going on, like even with what you touched on with Ukraine? like now we're seeing people are kind of switching off when they're hearing about Ukraine at the moment because it's like, ah, oh, it's hard to think about. It's hard to continue that sense of, of care and concern. Same with COVID, compassion.
0: no one wants to go yeah. through COVID
3: again. I,
0: it, on that point, I mean, I, as much as I don't want to hear it, I really want to hear a horror story because I, th- I, think, I think you need to give a story that like, if people are watching and listening, they need to, you know, hear it and go, right, that, that's going to make me do something. And you've touched upon-
3: Yeah, no, if I, give if, you're you a, comfortable. if I give you a story from the stand, the first event that we did, because yeah. this is the one that shocked me the most. Right. It was the one that gripped me. We, had a, uh, we wanted to tell a story of hope. So we wanted to have a mum tell a story of a child being coming back. And we reached out in, in the community where I live. And uh, in the same place that my wife teaches, we, we managed to find a mum whose daughter had been trafficked. And at the age of 15, she had started dating a guy who was 17. For 18 months, they dated, okay? And uh, he, two years on, uh, gets a job offer in London. So mum lets the daughter travel to London for the day to help him into his new property. From where, which country was it? From the UK. From the UK, okay. okay? Uh, In the north of England. And on day one- She's traveling at 15. To London. No, no, no. Fifteen. They started dating. She's almost seventeen. Right. He's supposedly nineteen. They travel down to London. On day one, he sells her into a brothel. She's not found for five years. Oh my god. Okay. What shocked me, the mother was white, middle class, and worked for the local council. Okay. So they had an inn. 15, no, fifteen-year-old daughter. No. Meets a guy. No. No inn. Oh, okay. Just meets a guy she's from a good neighborhood she's white and she's middle class it absolutely rocked me yeah because i was thinking i have in my mind who these people are yeah, yeah. all right and if if you start to think about it if you, i don't know if you've got any sisters or whatever if you've got a sister or you've got a, a niece or a, yeah, cousin, I've got a niece yeah, yeah. I,
1: when you relate it to that yeah
3: and you go imagine that they're 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 15 and yeah. you meet the, the boy that, that's dating them and you think it's yeah. oh, all good it's all good and then on day one, she doesn't speak to the mother. Mother thinks she's run away. Five years. Imagine that's what crazy. five years. That's the kind, of, is. I, that's I the kind let, of shit
2: that scares the life out of me. And yeah. I've got a daughter, and it's like I would like I, I would die for for her. And and I, would, you know, just if that was to ever happen, it's just like. Yeah, it hurts inside, you know. Yeah, it's, and that, that's sometimes what you've got to think
1: about because I'm the same. I'm so overprotective. Um, you know, we had the discussion before. I'm like so, with, uh, you know, and, and to think that that could happen, I, I, in my mind it's like I wouldn't let it because I would be so protective of that daughter or that girlfriend or whatever it is, but it does happen mm. and it can happen, you know. And it's like, I remember the thing that set me off was I was watching, um, is it Ross Kemp? Yeah. Was it from EastEnders? Yeah, yeah, Usually this yeah. extreme world thing, yeah, I see it, yeah. and there was one on human trafficking. I never forget. I saw it and I was just glued to the screen. I thought, this, if they, I'm I'm here breathing, having a nice time, and this is happening, it's like something has to be done because this is just yeah. like the most atrocious thing I've ever seen. So any time a friend said, "Oh, like no, no disrespect to Alfie, no disrespect to homeless people," but not your homeless, but the homeless people, like, <laughs> like they they they. they you know, Alfie does a lot of work with homeless, right? Okay. So, I like when people say, "Oh, I'm doing this." you know helping the homeless I'm always like but I hope for justice like every single friend no matter what they're doing I'm not saying anything because it's terrible that they're there and right. yeah Some issues are greater they are than that's why I feel like it needs to be put as a priority right because someone to say, oh okay things that are really bad you know Alzheimer's all these things of course and it's they've got cancer they've got a special place in your heart because someone in your family has been affected most people their family hasn't been affected by this so it's not like oh yeah yeah my mum had cancer right so it's it hits me and it's, do you want to help a cancer charity? Most people this hasn't happened to, but it's the worst thing that can happen to anyone, right? Or to anyone's family. So it's almost like you need to see something or hear that story to go, right, that's it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something. Well,
2: what? we're in film production, right? And I'd love to document something that uh, it can, can resonate with, with the people to, to do something. And I think uh, getting it out on you know, a platform where it could just re- really help you know we can, we can make that happen you know what, you um, have to be
1: careful that you don't get killed making a
2: documentary no of course not of but, course if you not. Don't, but that, uh, like you it's said not that's, a good,
3: it's not the, a good one if he ends up getting killed <laughs> no, again,
2: but the story you told you know that, that, uh, that hit home and you, you really wanted to do something I think that, you know that will, that will how, go did it, how did
0: it end how, tell us more because you were saying about it. so she so was there for five years she and, was
3: there for five years the police did a raid on a brothel in London find her now imagine how much pain and heartache and hurt on both sides mom and daughter in terms of where that's from. And I think, I think that's the bit of, you know, you just described how if it was your daughter, if any one of us knew that your daughter was gone, what would we do? Yeah, And it's so going, they are someone's daughter. Yeah. And are we, do but we even care. This yeah. is the
1: issue. My brain turns off even now. Like if I see a picture, it's like, shit, this is happening. When you said it, I've got a protective mechanism where my brain says, no, 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 that, that's, that didn't happen. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's what happens with everybody, even with me, as much as I want to help and I know about, you know, the, this from talking to you, but that something turns off is a protective mechanism where you don't want to be, you don't want to feel that much pain for somebody else, which is like, you know. Such a good point, yeah. But somehow you've got to be open to it.
3: But that, that is what drives you from apathy and action. When you can feel the pain mm. and go, anytime any you've ever seen anybody do something significant in life, they've seen that pain and they've not let that pain wash off of yeah they've not been like a teflon man to allow it to not stick they've actually sticked in it, and they're going to press into the pain mm. and go actually what does that make me want to do and how am i going to change my life as a result it's putting pain into action like yeah. You said,
1: yeah and you're the best example of that tim i've got to say
3: no like i want to just say there's some amazing organizations in this field that are doing such amazing work across the globe and we're just one of them but i'm i'm looking at it and going I see in everyone's life how everyone has a platform in their own world to be able to do something about it. It's just whether people are bothered and whether there's that point at nighttime when they're when they're tucking themselves into bed and they're closing their eyes, whether there's a point where they go, I care enough to do something.
2: I want to talk about um, the actions that you want to put in place and and where you see Hope for Justice going in the next three years, five years, 10 years. You know, what uh, what are you putting in place now What the campaigns you're working on to to see it?
3: So if, if I was to progress. Like, progress in this country, we're really, we're blessed because they created what's called a national referral mechanism and the, the home office, the people who look after the police have a database and they document it every quarter to say how many people have been entered into the national referral mechanism as prospective cases of modern day slavery human trafficking. So first quarter this year, there were 3,777 individuals that were fined uh, over 20% up year on year massive numbers that we're starting to see. So there's over 100,000 cases in the UK that are estimated at this moment in time of people held against their will. We don't have national referral mechanisms and systems like that across the globe. So we would advocate for more work to be done. And we're looking to develop and, and, and build an effective solution for governments to be able to bring that information to bear. Because it works like this, that the top three countries where people were trafficked from in the UK Number one was the UK, second was Albania, third was Vietnam, this last year. Therefore, if I was a border force official and I was bringing people into the country from Albania or Vietnam, I might ask a few more questions because I know it's a particular problem. And it's using data and intelligence to try and help. And I think in this field, to James's point, I think data, intelligence and technology are gonna be used to the fore across the globe. For Hope for Justice, We have this crazy audacious vision that we can actually live in a world free from slavery. It just hasn't happened yet, but we're moving to that point. So it requires us to have a scale and an impact that we're bringing across those four key areas, prevention. So in places like rural uh, areas across Africa, we're building self-help groups. We've just got short of 6,000 women at any one time that meet in groups of 12 to try and help educate the local community, raise enough money so their family don't get debt bonded. We need to see more of that grow so it creates stable communities that can launch entrepreneurial businesses that can stop it from happening. Mm Because prevention is the best cure, really. It's the the only area that we have to focus on the most. That links directly with reformation where we need to see laws change across the globe. So we just had a bill um, passed through the House um, in America, um, the TVPA bill, it's the commonly known as the Frederick Douglass Act. Um, The realignment of the Frederick Douglass Act that was first brought in 20 years ago, an update to it, uh, passed through the House. We're hoping it will pass through the Senate and that will bring provisions for US federal expenditure going forward um, to ensure that, for instance, that they're not buying hotels where hotel staff haven't been trained on the issues of modern day slavery. We're expecting an update to the 2015 Modern Slavery Bill here in the UK Coming through this year and certain provisions coming through around uh, government departments and they're not buying products that have been made through slave labour. Um, you know, at times we had the issue of um, latex gloves during the pandemic for PPE where they were coming from Malaysia. The German government banned them coming, from, coming in, the US government banned them in, but the UK government didn't.
1: Because all the MPs were making money out of PPE, that's why. I can't make that comment, but what we
3: I would say is it needs us to have a different approach to yeah. this. So those are the two. And then across the board, we're, we're trying to increase the number of rescue hubs that we have and increase the number of lighthouses that we have from a restoration point of view. We have in this country, what we call independent modern slavery advocates. Each one of them have a portfolio. Um, we're working at the moment with British Red Cross and with another project called Snowdrop, who look after trafficking victims, to to create IMSAs that independent modern slavery advocates almost like nurses are. So people know what a nurse does, that you would know what an IMSA does to try and help support trafficking victims. Because that's where you see them get the right level of care, criminal and civil litigation going through, and we see traffickers held to account for them. People often tell us is what we're trying to do is impossible. Often often all the time. You know, like yeah. the weight of everything that we're seeing across the globe, how slavery has existed in different forms through generation to generation, trying to be impossible. And we choose to greet it with the words that Muhammad Ali said. The impossible is just a big word thrown around by small minded men who find it easier to live in a world they've been given than the power they have to change it. That's so impossible true. is nothing. Impossible is temporary. Impossible is a dare. And if you can if you can greet the problem and the darkness with with this mentality to go. No, we're gonna have this. We're gonna deal with this. And in our generation, we're gonna shift culture to a point where this is not acceptable. Because for years, William Wilberforce fought against the transatlantic slave trade. But there was a moment where they saw a shift and it didn't happen necessarily when he thought it would do. It didn't happen in the, in the way he would like to, but it, it required him to have a certain tenacity. And we've realized that what we're trying to do is almost like the cathedral builders in years gone past. Because cathedral builders, when they laid the foundation stone, some cathedrals took 400 years to build, which means you're laying a foundation stone that you're not even going to see anywhere near you this. You don't build. know if it's possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's not gonna, you're not going to see any of it. But suddenly we, we stand back and we look at some cathedrals in awe across the world that have been built by, by people with pretty basic tools. And even today, even to build structures that are similar is really, really complex. But I look at it, you have to have almost that cathedral in your heart. You have to be so caught up with a vision that you can change people's lives to help the weak, the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, you can help them to have a completely different reality. It's amazing. I love that. That's
1: incredible, man. Like what you just said there, like that, that needs to be spliced up, put out (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) Like the spokesman for Hope for Justice. That's like, honestly, mate, it's so good, man, to be around people like you that are trying to help everybody. And like that energy that I felt when you said that, you know, is the sort of thing that's going to push me on to try and help and probably you. And that's what people need to hear. I mean, that's amazing. I think the best thing is like where I'm trying to think, how can people help? All this information you're given in all these different areas, just that knowledge mm-hmm. of, you know, knowing about everything you've said, different places, different areas where this person might be oppressed or not, that's going to be in the back of people's minds when they hear this. Mm-hmm. So that, like you say, that Oh, that's amazing i don't remember that i think we that should be like the the motto of hope for justice how yeah. you said everything there so and I, I love that thing
0: about i've you know t- yeah in, in a very different scenario, i've been told things that i've done is impossible and you, and you really liked it. that kind of egg, you know eggs you on more to try and do it and you know you you, you can you can look at impossible as one word saying impossible you can look at it, i'm possible you can yeah. separate and go well actually i'm possible and we're possible and there's loads of different things that can come off that i love that i love the fact that that's like you're you're driving it
3: forward off the back of like something that the majority of people think it's not possible. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's a spirit that gets on a group of people. Yeah. So yeah. I, like, I, I want to have an organisation mm. that if I fall, someone else will take my place. You know, that- Still, the, the work carries on. Yeah. I yeah. don't know if you, there's a, an amazing book called Starfish and the Spider. I don't know if you ever read I've it. I've heard of it, yeah. I haven't yeah, read it, I've, but I've, I've heard, heard of it. That, um, You know, when the, the Spanish came in and attacked the, the Incas, they were able to pretty much decimate them because they, they took out the Inca leader. And that, that's, that's like more of a, a spider model where you take the head off it, the spider dies. But if you cut a, a starfish in half, it grows another starfish. And when, when the, the Americas were, were attacked, the, the kind of authentic Indians in, in America, the, the kind of indigenous people weren't formed into one massive structure they were based into smaller conglomerate groups that were looking after a core area they were looking after their specific area so as a result of it it made it really difficult to take down and you want to have a movement where people go i'm in yeah and i'll lead from where i'm at i don't need somebody to give me everything i'm gonna i'm gonna educate myself i'm gonna go on the website and get as much information as i possibly can yeah and i'm going to That's use true. my a lot of people
1: say where do i find it you've got a website you know i've been through your website you've got a social media platform you've actually got a really good following yeah. you know so yeah we got three minutes so tim i don't know what to say i mean thank you so much for your time mate and coming and and sharing your energy with us and i hope this can you know lay the spirit of what you've said can lay on these guys as well as me because in a group we're stronger with knowing yeah, this sure. information
0: yeah it's blown, blown my mind honestly really, yeah. really i've just been you know, sorry if I've been staring at no. you, I've just been glued to your <laughs> eyes. It's,
2: it's so inspiring in <laughs> the point uh, where I sort of lost my way what I was going to say. You're so inspiring and you've got a vision to, to abolish slavery. And you, you, you made the point that it's never it's not been done yet, but you've, you've got that goal that you want to achieve this. And I think that alone is, is just so impactful and so powerful. And uh, you're, just, you're just incredible. And you're doing a great thing yeah amazing
1: amazing, tim and i know i've just said like people can find you but like is there anything you want to give a message to anyone or is there any do you want to give the social channels or the website or not or just tell people just to look
3: look up hope for justice like generally across all of the different social platforms whichever one people engage with the most and don't do nothing so people always will think about things like i'll I'll do that when, mm. or, you know, only whenever I find myself in a position where I'm in a place where it's yeah. easier or where it's more convenient. I, what, what we end up doing in, in events, if say, for instance, we ask people to give in an event, there's, there's a, a factoring of three of to 4% of people that will do something instantly. There'll be another three or 4% who'll say, I'll do it when I get home. It never happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's like dreamland. So it, it's almost like virtual reality. And I, I would encourage everybody to, I'll go back to that challenge I was given to anyone who's listening to the reality is you can all do something. And if of the thought that you could do something and it's gonna mean somebody else is set free, why wouldn't you do that? Is is there a
1: metric? Like, you know, I do one thing every three days. Because I don't know, maybe it's just the way my head works, but like, how are we going to leave here and do some, like not, we've got to do something. I think, I think
0: you just touched on it. Challenge, challenge yourself to, to do something or challenge yourself not to do nothing. You know, as soon as you put that challenge yourself in front of it, it's like, you can't just go on the web. You can't just Google it and not do anything. Okay. You have to challenge yourself. Okay.
3: Oh, you, can I'm giving pro- you,
0: a, can, you can promise everyone. I'm giving a metric video. of something to do. Yeah. It's all video. It's so if you make a promise. Yeah. Yeah. I okay, just
1: to could share. put a metric on something so you know, and you're accountable then to like not Check. forget in three days. Okay. Look, we've got to do this. Like we've got to do a fundraising.
3: That's why, that's why events are so good. Yeah. Because you can go, I am going to do this thing. Yeah. and it might be outside my comfort zone. I'm going to do it. Do it, zone, do it. Yeah. And it's a date and I'm, oh, I've got to build up to it and I've got to tell people about it. And it's, It sometimes events are good, Okay. So,
1: sorry. sorry. So in that respect then, Tim, anything we can help with, let us know. And yep. I know that's putting it on you, which is not ideal, but you know, anywhere I can help. Matt's film producer, you know, yep. and uh, actor. So, you know, anything in that area. Jay is a producer and works with, and, you know, I've, you know, my background. So anything that we can do, if it ever comes across that we can connect or do something and then we'll think on our own, something yeah. we can do. Yeah, exactly. All right.
0: Amazing. Thanks, Thanks
1: very so much, much. Thanks again, Tim. Thank take you care, so mate. much, mate.